0: This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages..: Well, go ahead and turn to First uh, Corinthians chapter 1. We'll try to try to uh, quit a little early tonight so that we have time for some questions. I said I was going to do that, and then I haven't been doing that, because I go right up to 8 o'clock plus, and so it's a bad habit. I should be more disciplined. So so chapter 1, and starting at verse 10, this is the section that we started on last week. The apostle says... Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Well, we saw last week that um, starting in chapter 1, verse 10 through 421 is an entire unit. And really, um, although on the surface of it, it looks like the theme is going to be unity, uh, because there are divisions, Uh, actually the theme as we're going to see tonight is going to be on uh, wisdom from God versus the wisdom of this world, and the wisdom of the world is is actually what is driving the divisions and it 's fueling the pride, but ultimately it is uh, it's not uh, it 's not the issue of division itself that Paul is uh, dealing with he 's going to be dealing with the root, and so one ten to four twenty one forms that unit. Um, the apostle in the introduction has talked about us being called into fellowship um, through God, uh, into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. And, and so here's the church. We're supposed to be uh, in, a, in a shared partnership in Christ with each other, union with Christ, union with each other. There's supposed to be this, this, uh, this, this joy and unity in the body, and yet at the church at Corinth, that just is not happening. In fact, we have noted that the presenting problem, and by that what we mean is the problem which appears to be the problem on the surface. Okay? Presenting problem is the problem that everybody can see. The problem underneath is the root. All right. The presenting problem is that they have divided up into different parties, and we're following men. And so last week we, we went through this, we just touch it by way of review there's this exhortation to unity and the minute that paul says in 110 i exhort you brothers he is now making a transition from the salutation and thanksgiving into the body of the letter paul's getting down to business now with the corinthians and just to just to remind us he's addressing them as brothers He's reminding them that they are a part of the family of God. They belong to each other. They're related to each other through Jesus Christ and God's Spirit. So the content of the exhortation is that Paul is hoping that they would, and some of this may sound a little strange to us, literally that you all say the same thing. That's more of an idiom. Paul doesn't want them all walking around like, you know, Stepford wives just mimicking each other. Right? What he wants is for them to become allies. What he wants is for them to be on the same side, to be on the same page. And then the second piece of, uh, of exhortation is that there not be any schisms among you. And the idea there is, is, is not primarily doctrinal, but interpersonal. What Paul is saying is, I'm exhorting you that on the one hand, you become allies, that you are on the same page, but also that there not be any any rips or tears in the fabric of your unity. And then the third piece of exhortation is, but that you would be equipped or prepared in the same mind. That is that um, the word equipped or prepared actually comes to us from a word that is Uh, frequently used in the restoration, for instance, um, the repairing of nets, for instance. Um, And so the idea is that you might be restored to the same outlook and same attitude. And so Paul is recognizing that that the divisions that existed among the Corinthians had resulted in radically different perspectives, radically different attitudes, both towards uh, one another and also to... The nature of the gospel and to the men preaching that gospel. All right? And so <clears throat> Paul encourages them to be of the same purpose. That is I think the idea there is the idea of same, the same goals the same purposes so that you're unified, connected by the truth, moving in the same direction. So you're not only on the same page but you're also moving all in the same direction. Now Why does Paul uh, make such a big deal about this? Well, verses 11 and 12, the report from Chloe's people, it was revealed to me by Chloe's people. Gordon Fee says, they gave Paul an earful of the real situation. So we don't need to rehearse this, but Chloe was probably a wealthy householder, businesswoman, probably like Lydia, And she had people. This is either family or servants or uh, business associates. Paul at this time is in Ephesus. They either were were from Ephesus, went to Corinth for business, which of course was a commercial center and went back to Ephesus, or they were from Corinth and came to Ephesus for business. Whatever the case, Paul asks them, how's the church at Corinth doing? And they give him an earful about the way things really are there and his is this is what he hears that there are disputes or strifes contentions quarrels among you and here's the substance of it each one it's actually it's actually quite shocking the way that paul um expresses it because he basically indicts everybody in the corinthian church each one of you says and then he gives this list i am of paul remember i mentioned that these were probably like um political candidate slogans, you know, I'm for Paul, well, Paul's a loser, he's not as nearly as good a preacher as Apollos, I'm for Apollos, and, you know, well, both of them are too Greek, I like the Hebrew guy, Peter, I'm for Peter, you know, and uh, then, of course, you have the super-spirituals, I'm of Christ. Now, um, The division, as I mentioned last week, could either be, these are actual parties divisions in the church. So you had a Paul party, a Peter party, uh, you know, a, an Apollos party and a Christ party. Or Paul actually could just be using some rhetoric or hyperbole, uh, in a sense, kind of um, characterizing the divisions that exist in the church. But the bottom line is that these divisions were not doctrinal. Paul, Apollos, and Peter are not preaching three different messages that are creating doctrinal alliances by the people in Corinth. What's going on really is is more about power and status than theology. There's a sense of individualism and an individual spirit within the community so that uh, it's, it's no longer the idea of a unified body, but now it's fragmented and it's fragmented along alliances and loyalties to men. And <clears throat> I've thought about this the last couple of weeks and, and, and it just seems just inescapable to me. And that is, when our primary loyalties and allegiances are to men, division will always follow. You get that? When our primary allegiances and loyalties are to men, divisions will inevitably follow. And that's what's happening. And so Paul then uh, asks a few rhetorical questions, and these rhetorical questions actually serve a purpose, and that is, what he's doing is he's going to reduce the Corinthian mindset to absurdity. Okay, that's what the argument is going to do uh, in, in, in Charlie's logic class. Uh, any, any students in Charlie's logic class here? Okay, okay, maybe some graduates. Okay, yeah, Mike Shepard raised his hand. Um <clears throat> Charlie probably teaches the kids about reductio ad absurdum that you, it's a it's a way of arguing where you reduce the other person's argument to the to uh, to absurdity you show the logical conclusion of the argument as being complete folly and that's what Paul's doing here and so he asks this first question has christ been divided and the 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 question itself is actually really Somewhat designed to, to shock them. Um, he, Paul's gonna, Paul's not above shocking people, by the way. Sometimes Paul says things that are incredibly shocking that are designed to kind of grab you. You know, if you hear things said the same old way over and over and over again, you get so accustomed to hearing those things, you take them for granted, and you don't really hear it anymore. And so Paul is not above using shocking language, jolting language to kind of grab their attention. I mean, he's going to do the same thing in chapter 6. Are you going to join Christ to a prostitute? And of course, the idea is that shocking. No way. Well, that's exactly what you're doing when you do this. Has Christ been divided? And the picture is, is actually, has he been chopped up and apportioned out to the church? And the idea is, is shocking, it is a shock tactic, and then he turns around and he says, surely Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Just as surely as has Christ been divided, now the, 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 the form of the question actually does not presume a negative answer in that case, this next one does. Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? And the implied answer in the Greek text is, is no, absolutely not. That is absolutely absurd. Paul's going to simply identify himself later. I'm just a servant of the word. That's all I, I you know, I plan, Apollos water, God causes the growth. God causes the increase. We're just servants through whom you believed. That's all we are. We're under rowers. We're the lowest class of servants. We're servants of Christ, nothing more. And so Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? Oh, here's another one. Were you baptized into Paul's name? Do you remember that day when you were baptized, O Corinthians? Were you baptized in the name of St. Paul the Apostle? Of course not. Of course not. And so it is at this point that some commentators believe that what's being indicated by this, uh, you were not baptized into the name of Paul, were you, Uh, is that it may indicate that, that some of the um, partisan politics, if you will, of the Corinthians seem to be attached to maybe who baptized them. So in a sense, sort of um, putting a tremendous amount of emphasis uh, and taking a tremendous amount of pride in actually who baptized them and that uh, whoever did that baptism, then they had a, an attachment to Now, when Paul asks this question, where you baptize into the name of Paul, it leads him into a bit more discussion about baptism. Now, normally, when Paul speaks about baptism, he speaks about baptism in ways that are encouraging. He speaks about baptism in ways that that are motivational for living the Christian life, being raised up with Christ to walk in newness of life and so forth. Um, He talks about baptism in ways that strengthen uh, our faith. Uh, Here, he's going to use baptism as a platform to remind them about unity, but in a very roundabout way. Here's Paul's strange thanksgiving. This is the only time, by the way, Paul who's profuse in thanksgivings. Prolific thanksgiver, says, verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. (laughs) Now, you know, as a pastor, I have to kind of laugh at that. I love baptizing people. It's It's just... Great fun, you know. You're standing there, it's just a joy. And here's Paul, and he says, were you baptized into Paul's name? Absolutely not. In fact, I am really thankful to God that I didn't baptize any of you. Oh, of course, except for Crispus and Gaius. Now, in all of Paul's memorable thanksgivings, here he's thankful for how few of the Corinthians he actually did baptize. Now, he says, I baptized Crispus and Gaius. Anybody remember who Crispus is? Of course, we covered this very early on in our introduction. He was the synagogue leader who is converted in Acts chapter 18 and verse 8. Okay? And, of course, the synagogue leader, that's, that's a big deal. And Paul baptized him, and then he mentions Gaius. And Gaius, by the way, is probably the same Gaius who is mentioned in Romans 16.23, let me just read that to you, Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Now, Paul is writing the book of Romans from Corinth in all likelihood, and so here is this man Gaius, and if he is host to me and to the whole church, what does that mean? It means Gaius is a wealthy householder, and the church meets in his house, or at least Many of the people in the church meet in his house, all right? So, Paul says, okay, well, I baptized those two guys. Now, some people want to wonder, why does Paul mention them by name? It could be that maybe they were very well respected. It could be that they actually were a good testimony to the unity of the church, regardless of the reason Paul turns around and in verse 15 says, here's here's why I'm so thankful that I didn't baptize any of you people except these two. So that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, at this point in the argument, it's interesting to me because what Paul is doing is, Paul is clearly expressing the fact that, the administration of baptism does not need to take place through the hands of an apostle. And in fact, what he's doing is he is ultimately diminishing the importance of who it is who administers baptism to you. Keep Keep that in mind. It is important, and then verse sixteen we have Paul's. Um, just uh, this is a senior moment. I love this actually. It makes me. It makes me smile. Actually, it makes me laugh. Verse 16, now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. Well, this previous verse, he says, or two verses, I didn't baptize any of you except Stephanus and Gaius, and now it's, uh, or Crispus and Gaius, and now it's like, well, you know what? I I don't even actually remember. Now, (laughs) okay, I baptized the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I can't really think about anybody think of anybody else. Now, I have no idea how many people Paul had baptized up to this point in his ministry, but here's, here's the funny thing: Paul is dictating this letter to we would just say a secretary. The fancy word is an amanuensis, and they were professional scribes that could actually take down a dictation. and So, here's the way that I think about it, is that Paul is dictating to the amanuensis, by the way, this letter is going to be sent back with Stephanus to Corinth, all right? So, he's writing in Ephesus, he's going to send the letter back with Stephanus, and as Paul's writing, or, or dictating, and the scribe is writing, um, Paul just has that moment where he goes, oh yeah, 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 I did baptize Stephanus and his household, um, gee, I don't think I, I, don't remember beyond that. If I baptize anybody else, that's very possible. You ever have those moments? Okay. <laughs> Some of you are shaking your head vigorously. Others of you will be there shortly. Trust me. There may be another possibility. And this is, this is just, just, you know, just thinking about the, the humanity of the way these things work. You know, Stephanus is going to be delivering the letter. And here's Paul dictating out loud and Stephanus is sitting there and he goes, wait a second, Paul, you baptized me and Mrs. Stephanus and all the little junior Stephanuses." Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Or maybe it was the secretary himself who maybe was a part of the Corinthian assembly. And he said, um, <clears throat> hang on a second, Paul, uh, you're forgetting a few people. Now, why is this so fascinating to me? Because it shows, first of all, that Paul did not go back and heavily edit the letters that he wrote. Okay, I think that's actually demonstrated here. Um, because guess what? If Paul was heavy into you know, having a second or third edition of 1 Corinthians that was polished and sent out, guess what would not make it into the second draft, right? This wouldn't. Uh, But the other thing is, uh, it's actually expressed real well by Sampa and Rosner. He says, in any case, Paul's come to think of it, or on second thoughts, is a delightful demonstration of the candid and uncontrived nature of Scripture, which, though lofty and inspired, communicates its message in a fully human way. Instead of being put off by it, the, quote, messiness of God's word is to be celebrated. We have a book that is absolutely, completely, fully inspired, but it's not the kind of inspiration that's contrived like other so-called inspired books. There's sort of a a, a neatness and a sterility to other, quote, uh, inspired books. The Bible, although completely inspired, is also wonderfully human. And you get a little view of, of Paul in his humanity and even in the weakness of his humanity. He's a little riled up. He does not, he's not thinking absolutely clearly about past events, and he just has, just has a senior moment, and he just blanks something. Now, <clears throat> I didn't really want to do this next part, but I felt compelled. Excursion on household baptism. The reason I'm compelled is because I'm a Baptist. Household baptism. Notice verse uh, 16. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Now, verses like these, just in case you don't know are used by paedobaptists. that's people that baptize their infants. And what they say about these verses is that verses like these supposedly demonstrate that infants were baptized in the early church. Okay. The, the assumption is, is a two-fold assumption that is pretty straightforward. And the first is this. There must have been infants in those households. Is that a fair assumption? I'm not going to quibble over that assumption. I'm sure that there were probably little ankle biters running around somewhere. The second assumption, though, is the problem. They must have been baptized, too. That's that's basically the problem. Now, you have to understand that the first assumption, although being reasonable, it's the second assumption, which is actually not reasonable. And... Um, I have thought that this this position or this argument is is really one of the weakest arguments for infant baptism by pedo-baptists, and, and I'm not talking about Roman Catholics per se. I'm talking about Presbyterians in particular that wouldn't see baptism as actually regenerating the child, but actually brings the child in to the church into the covenant. Uh, so the child baptized child becomes a covenant child. All right. You have to make a very clear distinction between, let's say, Roman Catholic, uh, Episcopal, and Lutheran infant baptism, and infant baptism in the tradition of the Reformed Church. All right? um, Reformed Church is basically not held to the idea that baptism washes away original sin and regenerates the child. It is simply the uh, analogy, New Testament analogy, to Old Testament circumcision. Old Testament circumcision was administered to the children. Oh, wait a second, only to the male children. And it was on the basis of that administration of the uh, uh, circumci- circumcision as the sign of the covenant that that person then became a member of the covenant. And basically, uh, the reform perspective is, is that uh, baptism now replaces circumcision so that Um, when you baptize a child, they become a member of the covenant, just like a circumcised child became a member of the covenant under the Abrahamic covenant, all right? And one of the pieces of evidence that they use to say that this was the practice of the early church is the appeal to household baptism, all right? So, let me just do this as quickly as possible, painlessly as possible. The second assumption that... Infants must have been baptized would actually require something more than what paedobaptists want to argue for. Okay, and that is if you say there must have been infants in the household, and then two, then they must have been baptized. The second assumption actually requires that every member of the household would have therefore been baptized. Okay. In other words, you can't just single out at that point, just infants. And so um, then you would have to wonder about the status of unbelieving spouses, servants, extended family. So if it says, I baptize the household of Stephanus, does that mean absolutely everybody in the household, including infants? And uh, all that actually needs to be demonstrated is that there were exceptions. And it is reasonable to assume that the exceptions, of course, were those who did not or could not believe, okay? But the biggest, the biggest obstacle to this view of household baptism is the Bible itself. When households are mentioned, what is emphasized is their faith, which would mean that household baptism would have been the baptism of believing members of the household, all right? Now, just so you don't think I'm just making this up because I am a Baptist by conviction, look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And uh, this is uh, uh, an episode of Jesus healing in Capernaum. And... Verse 53, just picking it up in the middle of the story, so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he believed with his whole household. Now, what is the the indication there is that the man who had the healed son believed, and what's the implication? Actually, it's not even an implication, what's the text say? The household believed, right? He believed with his whole household, all right? So what I want to point out is household and faith, actually, are frequently tied together so that we're not talking about baptizing people that don't believe or cannot believe, but people who believe. So the book of Acts, of course, is the big... um, uh, The big point in the debate, many of the texts, uh, household baptism, take place in the book of Acts. And so let's take a look at these quickly. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is going to be talking about Cornelius and his household, right? Now, I want to point out some details to you. All right? So. These things are important. I actually will will underline or make marginal notes in my Bible because in the course of talking to people that believe these things, it's kind of important to be able to point these things out. It's what does the text say. It's not what did Calvin say. It's not what does tradition say. It's not what does the confession say. It's what does the Bible say, right? So there's uh, the man from Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Now notice verse 2. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household. Okay? So notice Cornelius fears God with, what, with his whole household. The, the obvious conclusion is, is that those that Luke is referring to who are in his household are God-fearers also. Okay, Now, of course, you know the story. He has a vision, um, calls for Peter, and Peter shows up, and we won't go into all the details about that this was a Jewish no-no to walk into a Gentile home, but we have down in verse 24, on the following day he entered Caesarea, that's Peter, now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends, and so who's all in the house that day? Well, it's going to be Cornelius, his household, and what is his household made up of that day? Well, relatives and close friends. And so, of course, uh, he's preaching, and verse 44, while Peter was still speaking the words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. Okay? All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized, who would receive the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. So at that point, what do we conclude is that... Who were baptized that day? Believers, Believers, people that had heard the gospel, received it, and the Spirit of God came upon them. Now look at chapter 11. Peter's having to give a report. He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, verse 13, sorry, saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who's also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved and all your household. So, I mean, to me, the, the insistence that households include infants, okay, maybe they do, but then that infants must, be, must have been baptized actually isn't bore out by the evidence in the book of Acts. Take a look at chapter 16. Now, there's two instances of household baptism in 16, and I want you to see these clearly. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to things spoken by Paul. Now look how Luke does this, just so simple. And when she and her household had been baptized... She urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. Nothing is said other than just this very, very simple, straightforward, God opens her heart. So the implication, though, is, is that God saves Lydia. Lydia goes back to her house, and she shares the message, or Paul comes and shares the message, and her entire household then is baptized. And again, the argument is, there must have been infants. Now look over at another household baptism. This is the Philippian jailer. You guys remember the story of the Philippian jailer? You guys remember the story of the Philippian jailer? Okay. And so there's an earthquake. Paul and Silas are singing hymns at midnight. There's an earthquake. The prison gates open. And you'll remember what happens. Um, the, the, the guard who would have been a retired Roman soldier knows that the penalty of actually having escaped prisoners is not only death, but actually uh, humiliating, degradating death and the loss of reputation which affects your family. And so he's going to do the noble thing, the so-called noble thing. He's going to fall on his own sword. Paul tells him not to do that. And, um, and then he cries out, so, uh, what must I do to be saved? Verse 30. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and notice this, you will be saved, you and your household. Okay. So what's the promise? Is the promise that if the Philippian jailer believes, his faith will be vicariously imputed to the rest of his family and all of his family will be saved because he's saved. Is that how it works? That's not how it works. It's not ever how it works. Okay? The implication is you believe you'll be saved. Your household believes your household will be saved. Now, speaks the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And there must have been babies there. And he took them out that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and... Notice this, just all his households in italics. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And so the the very appeal to household baptism being an argument for infant baptism is just unbelievably weak, and I I honestly can't believe that it's still used with great vigor. And one last one that applies to the Corinthians passage, 18.8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And so once again, we see the same pattern. The only exception to this pattern actually is with Lydia... And there's no reason to believe that she's actually the exception, just that Luke doesn't happen to mention that her whole household believes. All of these instances, the household believes, and it's the believing household that is then baptized. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now, that's why we don't baptize babies. Actually, there's lots of reasons why we don't baptize babies. This is why we baptize believers, right? Okay. So, that's an excursion. You know what an excursion is? An excursion is a sanctified rabbit trail. Okay? So, now that we've gone... the we'll, we'll take some questions at the end here. But, I do want to get on to verse 17. Because, 117 is the turning point of the argument... So just like 110, I exhort you, brothers, is the turning point for the letter. 117 is the turning point for the argument. And this argument is going to be sustained all the way through 421. Now notice what Paul does, verse 17. So after he recovers from his senior moment, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, notice, first of all, that Paul states this in the negative. The four, by the way, in verse 17 is explanatory of verse 14. Here's why I can thank God that I didn't baptize any of you, because Christ didn't send me to baptize. Now... What Paul's saying is simply to go around baptizing people. That's not my calling. Now, is, is Paul diminishing the importance of baptism here? And the answer is, is absolutely not. You, you can't read the rest of Paul's writings and conclude somehow that he doesn't care about baptism. He cares deeply about Baptism. But what he is saying is, is that it is the proclamation of the gospel that effects salvation, not baptism. In other words, what ultimately matters, what really matters when it comes right down to it is preaching the gospel itself, not baptism. I wasn't, I wasn't commissioned to go out and baptize. And you go, well, I mean, in a sense, sure, he was in the sense that the great commission tells us to do what? Make disciples and to baptize them and so forth. And Paul certainly does that. But all he's doing here is he's simply saying, listen, My commission is not to go out and be a baptizer, it's to go out and be a preacher. My commission, the primary goal of my life, is to be a herald of the gospel. It's because in in heralding the gospel, that's where the power of God is demonstrated. Now, let me just say something here. The minute that Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize. You know what he does in one half of a verse is he absolutely, utterly demolishes the notion of baptismal regeneration. Because if what people really needed more than anything was just to be baptized, have some water sprinkled on them in the name of the Trinity, then that's what Paul would have been all about. Could you imagine if it was true that the act of baptism regenerates somebody, you know what we would be doing? We wouldn't waste our time with preaching. What we would be doing is we would be throwing water on people. It's like Charlemagne, who was converted in around 800 AD and supposedly converted, I suppose, and, and... he realizes he's going into battle with a bunch of pagans. And so he runs them all through the river. They cross the river and they're all sopping wet. And he turns around and he says, I declare you baptized in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. I mean, if if baptismal regeneration is true, why not? But Paul says, "He, he did not send me to baptize, which by the way, also in one half of a verse, undermines any theological perspective that says baptism is necessary for salvation. Again, not undermining the importance of baptism, but actually acknowledging that there is an order in God's work, which goes like this. The gospel is preached a sinner believes and is saved, and then as a result of that, they are baptized. And so, baptism is very important, but it actually comes after the hearing and the believing of the gospel. Baptism is most definitely the appointed way to profess faith, but it does not effect faith. In other words, baptism doesn't produce faith. Baptism is simply an expression of an already existing faith. And so I could say to you in good conscience, if you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have not yet been baptized by immersion as a believer, you need to be baptized. As an act of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. But I can also say, if you are unconverted if you are unregenerate, if you are lost, and we filled that baptistry up with water, and I got you in that water, and I held you down for 10 minutes, all the way under, and baptized you in the name of the Trinity, when you came up out of that water, you would still be dead in your trespasses and sins. And so Paul is simply undermining, or underscoring the fact, you know... (laughs) What, what did Christ Himself call me to do? What did Christ Himself send me to do? Not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In fact, he used there's this. <laughs> he called me to proclaim the gospel. Just is actually just one word in the Greek text to proclaim good news to uh, to gospelize. That's what we could translate. He sent me to gospelize. That is what I am all about. Paul's calling was to be a herald, a proclaimer of the gospel. In fact, later in the same book, Paul is going to say, you know what, if I went around preaching voluntarily, I'd have a reward, but I do it under compulsion, for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Now, I have no choice in this. Christ himself appeared to me, set me apart, commissioned me, not only called me into his kingdom, but called me into his service. These things are inextricable to me. When he saved me, he saved me to serve, and part of that service is to go and gospelize the nations. So for Paul, notice the way that he puts this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel to preach the cross, to preach Christ and Him crucified. And we're gonna see actually in one eighteen through two five that for Paul proclaiming the gospel. There's going to be two things that actually weigh heavy in this section, one eighteen to 2.5. And one is the message itself, which is Christ crucified, which is the wisdom of God and the power of God, but then also the method through which Christ crucified is proclaimed, which is through the foolishness of preaching. So you have message and method. Both of them actually are bound together in a way you cannot separate them. And Paul is going to say that that very reality of preaching Christ crucified is a redemptive, supernatural event when it's accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we preach. We don't preach because we've been inspired by late-night talk show hosts doing monologues. We don't preach because uh, it's, it's been the church tradition uh, not only for 2,000 years, but actually for 4,000 years. Okay? I think that'd be a good reason actually to continue, but we actually preach because we preach the gospel because it's the power of God and to salvation to everyone who believes. It is a supernatural, redemptive event. We're coming up to Reformation Sunday. The Reformers actually so believed in the preaching of the Word of God that in the second Helvetic confession, they actually encapsulated their conviction like this. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. So that proclamation, Paul says, that's what I'm about. I'm a herald, I'm a teacher, I'm an apostle, I'm sent to do what? To go and to preach the gospel. By the way, this actually sounds incredibly similar to the very statements of Jesus that we have in the synoptics. Jason just covered it in, in Luke 4, I think it was, where Jesus himself says, I must go and preach in other towns and villages for this purpose I was sent. God sends his son into the world, the incarnate second person of the Godhead, and he sends him into the world as a preacher. It's an astonishing thing. Paul says, when you see me, here's what you see, a preacher. Plain and simple. Now notice, there's another negative here. And that other negative goes like this. Literally, not in wisdom of word, which doesn't make any sense to us. New American Standard says, says it like this. And li- listen to these two renderings. NAS, cleverness of speech. Okay. ESV, words of eloquent wisdom. You can actually see both translations trying to get at something in this phrase, which is quite awkward, wisdom of word. Okay? So I would, I would say that this phrase, wisdom of word, was probably, in all likelihood, a very strong Corinthian value. Okay? So whatever it means, the Corinthians thought this is where it's at. Now, when we think about the phrase, I would say that the wisdom of word issue appears to be the crux of the issue, the crux of the problem with the Corinthians themselves. And the reason I say that is because of the way Paul is going to argue from here all the way through the end of chapter 4, where he's not going to be talking so much about divisions anymore as he's going to be talking about two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom that is human, wisdom that's from this world, or wisdom which is from God, and by the way, these two wisdoms are completely antithetical to each other. They do not commingle. They do not coexist. They do not cooperate. It's oil and water. And so, when he's talking about this that I would say that, that, that probably what's happening is that the divisions among the Corinthians are actually driven by this understanding of wisdom. And so whatever Paul's talking about specifically, it's wisdom from the world, 120. It is mere human wisdom, 125. Gordon Fee says, most likely it reflects the current philosophical milieu, with its emphasis both on human understanding and rhetorical skill. Okay? David Garland, it's connected with winning arguments and impressing an audience by rhetorical display rather than content. We mentioned this in the introduction, and, and, and here it is again. The idea of wisdom of word probably has the idea of, in, in one sense, human Autonomous reason, coupled with polished, sophisticated rhetoric. Those things melded together in the first century in the Greco-Roman world as basically a method of entertainment. So you had your orators, you had your rhetoricians, and as as garland says it's very important the idea is it's connected with winning an argument and impressing an audience by rhetorical display rather than content okay so first century phenomenon of 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 what sophistry was all about okay All they were interested in was gaining the approval of an audience, winning over an audience, not by the content of what they said, but by how cool they could say it. Boy, I'm glad we're past those days. Actually, if you think about what we call presidential debates... This is exactly the same thing. Who wins a presidential debate? Well, obviously, the person who has the most sophisticated, thought-out policies and the one who is the most articulate, right? And the one who actually sounds like uh, he or she has uh, a re- really good plans and really good people around, him, right? I mean, everybody's just listening for the substance, right? No, not at all. In fact, the debates are not even designed to be debates. What they're designed to be are sound bites and zingers that make somebody look better than the other person. You know, the Lincoln-Douglas debates were three-hour affairs between two people. That actually was an exchange of not only a formal, formal debate, but actually an exchange of ideas. There was discourse, there was reasoned discourse that people had to listen to. And who was listening... The academicians of the world, the answer is no. The farmers and the blacksmiths, these were the people that were just standing there listening for three hours to reason discourse. What do we get today? We get a Corinthian value is what we get. By the way, if you're interested in this as a subject, Neil Postman wrote, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Now, he wrote that book before the advent of the Internet. What he says in that book, let's just put it this way, is now exponentially true. Okay. He argues that there was a, there is a, there was a shift. We went, from, we went from a typographic way of communicating, as people typically had to read or listen to discourse to get information, to an image-oriented method of communicating. Right? So that it was flashy. So one of the examples that he uses is the uh, Nixon-Kennedy debate. Okay? Now, I wasn't alive. But some of you were. And here's the fascinating thing. People that listened to it on the radio believed that Nixon won the debate. And the people who saw it on television, it was the first televised presidential debate The people that watched it on television believed Kennedy won hands down. Why? Because Kennedy was handsome. He was calm. Nixon was sweating like a hog and looked nervous. But does that come out just hearing voices? And the answer is no. And so the Corinthian value... Of polished rhetoric that says nothing but's designed to impress and persuade still lives. And by the way, it lives in churches <laughs> that are typically on television. Okay. No substance, polished sophistry that persuades. Persuades to what? whatever the orator wants to persuade the audience to do, which, of course, in many cases is what? Give money, right? Now, boy, boy. So Paul's going to focus on human worldly wisdom and divine wisdom, and he's going to contrast them powerfully. And so here's the reason. Here's the reason why Paul says, I don't want any part of that. So you understand what's going on. The Corinthians value this. In fact, one of the things Paul's going to be criticized about in 2 Corinthians is that his appearance is shoddy and his speech is contemptible. Why do you think they gravitated towards Apollos? He was eloquent, mighty in the scriptures. And so here are the Corinthians, and they value the wisdom of word. They value the sophistry. They value the rhetoric. They value the polish. They value the impressive. They value the pizzazz in preaching. And here's Paul, and he says, you didn't get any of that from me. And you didn't get any of it from me because I determined not to do that for the very simple reason so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Wow! You could nullify the power of the cross well, not in an ultimate sense, but certainly in a sense in, 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 in communicating it, make void the power of the cross. So Paul saw relying on sophistry, on Sophia, relying on the, the polished rhetoric as actually nullifying the cross. And when Paul uses the cross, of course, he's talking about the fullness of Christ's redemptive work as it's encapsulated in the gospel. Now, Paul's going to later explain, just in this next section, how sophistry and rhetoric actually empty the message of the cross. And his point's going to be absolutely clear. The cross and human wisdom are mutually exclusive categories and completely incompatible. So, how is the cross emptied of its power? We'll pick up here next in two weeks, no doubt, but... Let me just make a few points in closing. First, David Garland notes, Eloquence that elevates the status of the preacher cancels the power of the cross. Eloquence that elevates the status of the preacher cancels the power of the cross. Now, let me just just say, what Paul was not advocating, nor would we advocate, is... Bad grammar and poor speech and uh, 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 duh, 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 okay? Paul's not saying the more stupid you sound, the more awesome the gospel. In fact, there's a great story about D.L. Moody, whose grammar was notoriously poor. He went to England and Spurgeon heard him and he said, Mr. Moody, you must improve your grammar. (laughs) Point for Spurgeon. Now, but what is he saying? He's saying that when, when the preacher is just going for, as it were, the approval rating, the minute that, that that's the goal, the approval rating, the preacher cannot be faithful to the message of the cross. You do understand why, don't you? Because it's foolishness to the Greeks, and it's a scandal to the Jews. If you're trying to get approval for that which the world does not approve of, you're going to be doing something with the message in order to make it more palatable. And Paul says, the minute that you're going for the approval rating, the minute that you're going for an elevated status as a preacher, you are nullifying the power of the cross. Another reason why the cross ends up being emptied is because the hearer's faith ends up resting on the persuasiveness, I love this phrase, it's not mine, of the oratorical dilettante instead of the power of the Spirit. If the eloquence and approval and persuasive power of the preacher is the primary thing, then the people who respond positively are not responding positively to the power of the Spirit and the message of the cross. They're responding positively to the preacher. And when that happens, you have to understand that that person's faith is not rooted where it should be in the cross. It's rather rooted on something that is as flimsy as can be, and that is the preacher's abilities. Garland, again, and this is so good, he says, clever rhetoric is superficial. It shortcuts the transformation of listeners by simply gaining their assent. It appeals to the emotions without touching the spiritual depths. It may reap numerous baptisms, but not many true conversions... Maybe you've been exposed, maybe you have not to what is nothing more than emotionally manipulative preaching designed to get a response. Paul says, I want none of it. I want none of it. The minute you go that direction, the cross is emptied of its power. So, I think it's good that God's people appreciate God's servants, but what God's people must adore is not the men who bring the message, but the Christ of the message, the message itself, which is Christ and Him crucified. I would, I love reveling in the preaching of those who make much of Christ. At the end of a sermon, we should should want to hear, hallelujah, what a savior, not hallelujah, what a preacher. Robert Murray McShane says, I see a man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. Lord, give me this. Well, I love this text. God help us to value it here. All right, we have um, one minute for questions. I told you I'd leave some time. Household baptism questions that Charlie can answer. No, that's, I don't think that that's the conclusion. So advertising, you're just letting people know you're there, what you're about. And if you're telling them what you're really about, then that's true advertising. Okay. If we told them we were about donuts, and they showed up and there weren't any donuts, because the bakery was closed, then we would be doing a bait-and-switch, which would be highly unethical. Yeah, David. Yeah, ask Naomi. Not that she's a Paedobaptist, baptist but she might know these things. She did go to Westminster like I did. Um, no, you know what? Actually, I don't think that there are good... Um, responses to it because the fact is is exegetically it really is so incredibly weak it is simply based on, on an assumption and um, you know I've heard R.C. Sproul make the argument I've heard uh, Greg Strawbridge make the argument and it's one of those things that because they the, the presupposition is there that there must have been infants which like I said is reasonable but then they must have been baptized, regardless of what the texts actually say. The assumption is so strong that it's very hard to move them off of the position. Now, Robert Raymond, who is a Presbyterian who wrote a systematic theology, does actually say that household baptism is not a good argument. So there are some that recognize it. So, yes, that's true too. So, and... Um, I've heard Calvin speaking in tongues, although it sounds a lot like the Minionese language. Um, but anyway, he's being an interpreter. All right. Well, thank you for your rapt attention. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of the cross, and we thank you that that it is the message that's the power, and Father, we thank you that, uh, that you have put that into our hearts as a conviction here. Father, we pray that we, would, that we would never compromise that. We pray that we would never try to take the message and make it more palatable to the world. Father, we pray that we would be willing for the gospel to be an aroma of life unto life and death unto death. We pray, Father, that we would marvel at the, at the glorious message of the cross, and, Father, we thank you for uh, for this passage. We thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians. And we pray, Father, that we would, in fact, live lives that are shaped by the cross of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775 782 6516, or visit our website, gracenevada.com.